So can you remember the last time that you attended a church service or willingly chose to attend a conference or workshop on the wrath of God? You know, this probably isn't the topic that a lot of us would choose if we had the pick of biblical passages to choose from to study. If you wanted to attend church and be encouraged and built up, you would naturally think, well, I should hear about the love of God or the grace of God. So then why is it that in God's sovereign plan that he would put more passages of Scripture about his wrath, anger, and fury than he would his love, grace, and tenderness? As A.W. Pink, author of a book on the attributes of God, says, simply study any concordance and it will show you that there are more references in Scripture to God's wrath and his anger and his fury than his love, grace, and tenderness. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the wrath of God? Friend, have you been attending a church that preaches the Bible or just whatever the pastor decides to preach? Many of you have been coming to Embassy for a little while, so you know that this is, oh, I've heard this before. But if you're newer to us, if you're trying to figure out why we would take time out of our Sunday mornings to listen about the anger of God, that just doesn't seem like a good idea. The reason is because it's the next passage of Scripture in the book that we've been studying. That's the easiest way I can describe it. Our church has decided from the beginning that when we got started, we would let God's Word set the agenda for our worship services, that Pastor Phil's personal agendas or preferences would hopefully, as much as possible, be put to the side and what we would do is what we are calling now expository preaching. And what we mean by that is we're going to look at a text, a book of the Bible, or a section of Scripture, and we're just going to teach through the main points that are in that text of Scripture until we're done with that text of Scripture. And we want to make sure that you are receiving the whole counsel of God. There's this wonderful description of Paul the Apostle who helped start most of the churches after Jesus died and rose again. So in the early church, there was a guy named Paul, and he would go around from place to place, and he'd start churches. And one of these churches he started, he decided to leave after it was established and go help start another one. And as he was leaving, after spending considerable time with these people, he said, God's blood, your blood, is not on my hands. I have given you the whole counsel of God, and therefore I feel completely free to leave you and go on to another church. Friends, there's a sense to which me as a pastor, I want to resonate with those words with Paul. I want to declare before you week in and week out the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that we kind of naturally gravitate towards, but all of it. So that way at the end of the day, at the end of your day, like judgment day, don't say, well, Pastor Phil never said anything about this. And I hope that as we work through even this book, Hebrews, that each of us will see how each and every word of God is what we need to live and breathe and die on. So let's do that together. Let's study the whole counsel of God, and let's turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. 
Hebrews chapter 10 can be found on page 1007 in these black Bibles that are around you. And if you have one of those red Bibles, I don't know which page that's on. I will be reading from the black one, so I'd encourage you to read from that one with me. If you're new to using a Bible, the 10 is the large number in the text of Scripture, and then these little numbers are verse numbers. They weren't originally there when the Bible was written, but later they've been added as helpful tools for us to find our place more quickly. So if I refer to chapters and verse numbers, that's what I mean. So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. And as I've already tried to make clear, this passage is one of the most serious warnings in all of the Bible about God's wrath. It begins this way, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I want to take three points for your instruction this morning from this passage. The first one will be, I believe, the most obvious. Point number one, we should believe and embrace the reality of wrath. We should believe and embrace the reality of a God of wrath. I don't think there needs to be much explaining, just pointing to the simple reality of these words. Fearful expectation of judgment. Fury and fire that will consume the adversaries. The literal phrase that seems to be maybe a reference to an Old Testament text here is actually the fury of fire will eat up the enemies of God. Imagine a fire burning and eating up everything around it, consuming it completely. Then notice the lesser to greater argument In verse 28 and 29, see, he refers back to the Old Testament in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, well, they would die without mercy on the evidence of just two or three witnesses. So if that's the way it was in the Old Covenant, times of Moses and Israel, contrast, greater, worse punishment in verse 29. How much worse do you think it'll be for anyone who's trampled the Son of God, profaned the blood of His covenant, and outraged the Spirit of grace. And then in verse 30, what we have here is two quotes from an Old Testament passage of Scripture. If you've been following along, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who he is, but we know he knows the Bible really well. And he has been quoting the Bible again and again and again. And in this sense, the Bible for him would have been the Old Testament. So he quotes here an Old Testament scripture, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And if you don't know Deuteronomy 32, this is the last words of Moses before he dies. 
And in these last words, he gives some encouraging words, and he gives some warnings. And here, our writer Hebrews quotes from some of the warnings, some of the judgment words that Moses gave before he died. And he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. Then you have this last phrase in verse 31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Some of you may have heard that phrase and thought, oh, that sounds familiar. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Maybe even some of you that aren't familiar with the Bible. In fact, some of you may have heard that phrase before because you went to public school here in the United States. I remember back when I was in high school, I think it was my sophomore, junior year of high school, in English literature class, we had to read a sermon from a man named Jonathan Edwards. Sermon title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Just by a show of hands, anybody read that sermon before in a public high school? So maybe half of you and then the other half didn't go to public high school maybe? Any homeschoolers, private schoolers? Yeah. So some of you know what I'm talking about. This has been standard literature for I think dozens of years that we would read this old sermon from a man named Jonathan Edwards, who as some have called one of the greatest theologians that America has ever seen in the history of America. For those of you that have never read this sermon, I want to just give you one brief excerpt to get a sense for this old piece of literature that high school teachers make their kids read. The God that holds you over the pit of hell like a spider or loathsome insect, holds you over a fire and abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath burns like fire, and he considers you worthy of nothing else but just fuel for that fire. His holy eyes cannot bear to even look at you. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his sight than the most hated, venomous snake to us. You have offended him infinitely more than the most stubborn rebel ever did his earthly prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you above that fire at this very moment. There is no other explanation why you did not go to hell last night when you went to sleep. There is no other explanation why you were allowed to be awake this morning, and no other reason why you have not dropped into hell since you woke this morning. But God's hand has kept holding you up. That's the only reason. There is no other reason why you have not gone to hell since you went and sat down in your pew in God's house this morning. You have provoked his pure and holy eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yes, there is no other reason why you do not drop down dead at this moment in the depths of hell. O sinner, think about the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath. A wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over by God's hand, whose wrath is as provoked and as incensed by you as any of the damned in hell. You hang just by a slender thread, and the flames of his divine wrath are licking about it. They are ready at any moment to burn that thread in two. And in spite of that, you have no interest in Christ the mediator. 
You have no interest in saving yourself, nothing to keep you away from the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you have ever done, and nothing you ever will do will spare you even for one moment. Did he go too far? Is this too intense? Is this one of those examples of a preacher embellishing, like, okay, we got the point, Edwards. Whoa, settle down a bit. I think a lot of times we get embarrassed about God's wrath as Christians. We like to talk about God's love, and friends, I I have never once had anybody tell me they didn't like my sermon when it was mostly about God's love. I don't know of too many preachers or pastors who get persecuted for talking plainly about God's grace and His mercy and His tenderness. Part of the reason why we're embarrassed and why we think that Edwards maybe is going on too far is probably because we just don't understand the word wrath or the biblical meaning behind it. A lot of us start putting human definitions onto an omnipotent holy God. He's so far and different from us that we make the horrible mistake at thinking, well, God's a God of anger and wrath. Well, does that mean he loses his temper? Does that mean he has no self-control? He's just this irritable, kind of begrudging God that, oh, I just can't wait to throw you in the fire of hell. Friends, this is not at all what we see in Scripture. God's holy and righteous anger is the necessary reaction that God should have against evil, including your evil, the evils and sins that you have committed against Him. How could God be good if He did not hate and abhor evil? It does not make any sense for there to be a God who would be the God over everything that's good and all-loving and great, but then He is indifferent toward rape, murder, pride and arrogance, war, violence? Should he look upon that with favor? Friends, this makes no sense at all. We should not be ashamed. We should not need to apologize that our God would be a God of consuming wrath. I'm not saying that we should be jumping up and down this morning with smiles on our face. Yeah, all right. And that's part of why I said every service that we worship together maybe has different tones or feeling. If you've only attended churches where every single Sunday it's happy, clappy, woo! What kind of Bible are you reading from? There are some times where it is fine for us to be triumphantly, victoriously celebrating the wonderful victory of Jesus. But there are times for us to see that that victory came at a great high cost that begins with a God of wrath and anger. If you've never felt the wrath and anger of God, then I don't even know how you could stand around and clap and celebrate. What are you celebrating that there's victory from? Who is it that you think you're saved from? Your sins? No, 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 no. You have not been saved from your sins. You have been saved from God because your sins have offended a holy God. Your evil in your heart is the problem you have. So if that's the problem, then you need saved not from sins. You need saved from God. That's the problem so many churches have these days. They don't understand that God is at the center of our salvation. He's the one whom we're saved from, and He is the one whom we are saved to, as we will get to 
in a few weeks. Or in a few moments, not weeks. We will end this sermon on a brighter note. (laughs) But as Richard Niebuhr has once said, too many churches these days have a God without wrath that brings men without sin into a kingdom without any judgment and through a ministry of Christ without any cross. I hope you understand this morning that you will not understand the gospel or what it means to be saved or be a Christian if we don't first begin with a holy, righteous, angry God. But we shouldn't apologize about his anger. He has every right to be angry because he loves what is good and wholesome and righteous and loving, and that's not been us. Look at humanity and look into your own heart. We have not been those things consistently, perfectly, and we have offended him. So, I'm not saying we should jump up and down. I think we should hear these words, take them on solemnly, soberingly, be reminded of them. I think if we had a weird smirk on our face, like we're happy about God's wrath, that should cause for concern, don't you think? In fact, it was just the other day, I, I want to sort of laugh, but also be concerned. I was asking my children what their favorite book of the Bible was. And they were talking about different things, and then one of them I will name nameless. She said, my son doesn't speak yet, he's two months. She said, Leviticus. <laughs> what? Why is Leviticus your favorite book of the Bible? Because of Nadab and Abihu. I was like, whoa, whoa, what is going on here? Like, this is not right. You have a weird mind right now. So I think that would be an immature way to think about God's wrath. Now, if you guys don't know, Nadab and Abihu could very well be on the mind of the writer of Hebrews. I'm not inferring anything necessarily, but this idea of a fury of fire that consumes God's enemies... Well, what comes to mind when you think of a fire coming down consuming God's enemies? Leviticus 9 and 10. God's holy temple has just been sanctified and consecrated and the priests have been cleansed. They can now worship God according to the rituals and rites of Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. And now chapter 9 comes and here God's holy presence comes down on the temple. And two fools come in and offer their own sacrifice on their own terms and in their own way and not according to the prescription given in other Leviticus chapters. And what happens? Fire falls down and consumes the adversaries and enemies of God. They have disobeyed him and rebelled against him. And so here I am looking at my daughter, sweet little girl, Nadab and Abihu. No, no, that's not the response I think we should have. Fear, yes. Weeping, probably, if not for our own soul, but for the souls of others whom God's wrath still hangs over. But not happy, clappy worship. Fred, I want to conclude, in fact, I want to conclude this point with three reasons why you should not just believe and embrace God's wrath and the reality of it, but in fact, meditate much on it. These three reasons come from that book I mentioned earlier, A.W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God. He says, the wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character upon which we need to frequently meditate. That seems strange to us, naturally. Frequently meditate on God's wrath? Why, A.W. Pink? First, so that your heart will be duly impressed, 
fully impressed by God's detesting of your sin. We are ever prone to regard our sin as light and to gloss over how hideous it is. And we regularly make excuses for it. But if you study and ponder more at God's hatred for sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely you will realize your own heinous sin. Second, we should meditate frequently on the wrath of God so we will have a true fear of God in our soul. For our God is a consuming fire, and then he quotes in his book, Hebrews chapter 10, the verses we just read. We cannot serve God unless there is a due reverence for his awful majesty, awful in the good sense, awful, like it is full of awe, his majesty is awe-inspiring, his godly fear, his righteous anger. These are best promoted when we frequently call to mind the consuming fire of our God. And third, we should frequently meditate on God's wrath to draw our souls into fervent praise because he has delivered us from that wrath. Are you starting to see just briefly why it's good for us to just go through the Bible and let it say what it says? There are good things for your soul if you think much on God's hatred for our sin and your sin. A.W. Pink says, Our readiness and reluctancy to meditate on God's wrath will be a sure test of our heart and how ready we are to stand before God. So I ask you this morning, are you ready or are you reluctant? What does your heart say? Let's move on to point two. We want to believe, we want to embrace the reality of wrath. Secondly, we need to beware of a sin that has no sacrifice. We need to beware of a sin that has no sacrifice. Do you see in verse 26 of chapter 10 that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins? If at this point of the sermon you are not perked up or awake or listening, then God have mercy on your soul. If being freshly reminded that there is in fact the reality of God's wrath, and you hear a passage that there is a sin that would have no sacrifice of sin to cover you from God's wrath, are you at all interested in finding out, is that me and have I committed that sin? I hope there's not any extra need for me to keep you focused on this point in particular. This, I believe, is the main point of this section. A warning that you would not commit this sin because if you do, you will experience the wrath of God. Are you sure that that's not you? Let's walk through this passage together to see who and what this is talking about. First, who? Who is this talking about? Well, notice the way he says, for if we, we go on sinning. So he, the author, who I would believe is more than likely a Christian, even though we don't know who he is, is talking to a group of Christians. And so he says, me and us together, if we do this, then there would be no sacrifice of sins. So that's first observation. I think he's talking about Christians. 
Second observation. Notice the way he says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Further evidence that he's talking about Christians. People who have received the truth about who God is, received the truth about who Jesus is, and believed it, accepted it, not just heard it, not just heard the truth, they've received the truth. Third observation for why this is Christians. Notice down in verse 29, when he's talking about the worst punishment, and he says, those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God, and then notice the next phrase, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Lots of debate could be made on this third point or observation that I'm making about Christians, but it seems kind of clear and obvious to me that if you put all of these together, the we and the receiving of the knowledge of the truth and this language of being sanctified, knowing that, look at chapter 10, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This word sanctified could mean just set apart and not a Christian, but here he uses just a few verses earlier that same word to talk about Christians who are set apart. So those would be three clues when I say, who is he talking to when he talks about this sin that would have God's wrath coming down on you? I think he's talking to Christians. The evidence, I think, is clear not only from these few verses, we just look at the immediate context, But again, think back to chapter 6 and chapter 2 and all the warnings in Hebrews. One New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight has argued in quite length, so if you want to read an article on this, why the letter of Hebrews, you should take all of the warning passages and put them as one big warning. Part of that is because at the end of the letter here in chapter 13, you're going to see him say, this concludes now my brief word of exhortation, meaning... It seems like this book that you have in front of you, Hebrews, this book is actually a sermon. It's a word of exhortation. So some preacher gave this sermon, maybe the writer himself, and it has now been copied down, just like Jonathan Edwards' sermon I read to you. It was written down and copied, and then now people read it. So it seems like when you read the Bible and read this book in particular as a whole, It fits within the context of his repeated warnings, not just to non-Christians or to people who are maybe in and out of the church, but to Christians who are in the church. So look back with me real quick at chapter 2 and see if it doesn't seem even similar to you. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After in chapter 1, talking at great length about how Jesus is better than the angels, he says, therefore... We much pay, much, must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or dis- disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect a great salvation? So those verses 1, 2, and 3 have very similar structures and themes that we just saw in chapter 10. Notice the way that in chapter 10 I showed you that he referred to the Old Testament. And he said, see, if this is what it was like in the Old Testament, how much worse will it be in the New Testament times if you reject Jesus? That's exactly what he said in chapter 2. Well, if the message given by angels, that's the law of Moses, 
If that was proved reliable and that people that disobeyed it received the punishment that they were deserved, well, how much more punishment for those who received the message given by Jesus? Very similar language, but also notice this. How shall who escape? We. Notice again, he's referring to himself and his hearers. We escape. We're all included in this, all Christians who are hearing this word. How are we going to escape if we neglect the message of salvation that Jesus brought? Answer, we will not. We will not escape the judgment and the wrath of God if we do neglect his salvation. In chapter 6, if you turn the page, you'll see there's a very similar idea expressed here. In chapter 6, starting in verse 1, notice the plural language. Let us leave the elementary doctrines. And verse 3, and this we will do. So again, he's talking about we. And then in verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they have fallen away, it will be impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to condemn or contempt. This passage, I think, is very similar to the Hebrews 10 passage as well. He's talking about we, and he's talking about a group of people who have been enlightened, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's word. What was the language we just saw in chapter 10? Received the truth and the goodness of God's word. They have participated in the Holy Spirit. They have been sanctified. So notice first that the answer, I think, to this question, who, is Christians. Notice that it doesn't say, though, that anybody actually did commit this sin. Look back at chapter 10 with me now. Very important word in verse 26. For if, not when, not, hey, remember when those people did this? No, for if we do this. This is what would happen. So it is a warning of if this happens, this would be the consequence. It does not say when or who did. So if you do this sin, you will be an adversary of God, an enemy of God, and you will be consumed by his holy and righteous wrath. Which brings us to our second question, does it not? Okay, what's the sin? What's the sin that if I commit this sin, that if I do it, then I would be led to God's fearful judgment? First observation about this sin. Just like the first question, we had three observations about who is doing the sinning. Second observation would be, uh, the second question, what is the sin? Three observations. So first, notice that it says, if we go on sinning. So I think you can see it quite plain in the English, so we don't need to parse Greek words here, but if you did, you would know that there would be a continual present state. So it's, it's not just a one-time act. If you said, for if you sinned, it's not what it says. For if you go on sinning, there is a state, a condition for which somebody is in. They're, they currently are this way. That's the first thing you need to realize. This sin is not a one-time act. It is a settled position, a decision that has been made, and it sticks in the present now. Second observation about this sin. Notice the word 
deliberate. Or maybe a tr different translation might say willful. Now, this is an easy question, right? What is the opposite of a deliberate sin? An unintentional sin or a not deliberate sin. And if you know your Bible or if you just paid attention in this worship service this morning, what comes to mind when you think opposite of deliberate sinning? Hmm. Numbers chapter 15, the scripture reading that Chad read for us this morning. There are sacrifices in the Old Testament for what are called unintentional sins where you make a mistake. Did you catch that when he read Numbers chapter 15? So it's listed on your bulletin if you weren't paying attention or dozed off or something. Go back and read Numbers 15 that Chad read for us and see that instructions were given that sometimes people would have sinned against the Old Testament law and they didn't realize they were sinning. Oh, I, I, so I just didn't even know that was a law. Does that mean that they're not guilty? No, you're still guilty even if you didn't know it was a law. But it does mean that it was a different kind of sin. It was an unintentional sin. And now that you know, you hopefully don't do it again. But there's a different sin that's talked about in Numbers 15. If you followed what Chad was reading for us, it says, now if somebody sins with a high hand, and the literal Hebrew phrase is a closed fist. So imagine somebody sinning and they get their fist toward God. Take this. There's pride. There's arrogance. There's rebellion in their heart and that kind of sin sticking it to them or whatever sort of image this is the sort of sin that he says there is no sacrifice for you sin with a high hand you are cut off from god so then that's why then there's an illustration right after that passage of here's what happens when there's unintentional sins mistakes and then here's what happens when there's high-handed, high-strong-fisted sins. Cut them off. Did you hear the story Chad read for us in Numbers 15? A man, we will presume because it came right after that passage, with a high-handed fist toward God, decides to disobey God on the Sabbath day. So two or three witnesses see this. And these two or three witnesses bring it before Moses, and Moses says, well, what should we do? stone him to death. Now, think about all of that Old Testament context. Realize that this writer knows the Old Testament quite well, right? Yes, he does. He quotes it every other verse. So, if he knows his Old Testament, and he just uses the word deliberate, with no sacrifice for sins, two or three witness, there's a punishment. I gotta think that he's thinking about that when he uses this phrase here that he's talking about a sin that is a high-handed, closed-fisted position or state toward God. Not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing state of this is my angry face toward God. If that's you, then you are probably committing this sin. Not just once, but regularly, daily. That is your disposition toward God. And he warns these people, these Christians, if you and me, if we make that choice and persist in that choice with a high-handed fist toward God, there's no sacrifice of sin for us. Only a fearful expectation of judgment. Third observation about this sin is that it comes after. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
after knowing that the Son of God is their Savior, and so instead of receiving Him as Savior continually until they die, they trample on Him. After taking the blood of the covenant, most likely referring to the Lord's Supper, receiving the Lord's Supper in the church, being sanctified by His blood, and then profaning it. Taking that cup of juice and just saying, this thing is not powerful. It can't do anything for my sins. You guys, every week taking the Lord's Supper and drinking your little cups of juice. You think that saves you from your sins? That's that sort of heart and fist toward God. And they have, at one point, were in the category of, yeah, that was me. But then now they have this hard, closed heart and fist. They're calloused toward God. They had received the spirit of grace, but now they are outraging the spirit of grace. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, Christian people, do not commit a high-handed, closed-fist rejection of Jesus Christ. His only sacrifice for your sins is the only sacrifice that is acceptable. If you reject Jesus, the only thing you should expect is judgment. It's quite simple, actually. If Jesus' blood is the only way that you can be forgiven of your sins, to reject him means that you don't want that blood to cover your sins. And therefore, there's no sacrifice of sins for you. And if at one point you had received those things, and you were God's people, and you turn away from him, friend, repentance is impossible, Hebrews chapter 6, and judgment is certain for you. Now, at this point, some of you are like, okay, so wait, I thought Embassy Church believed people don't lose their salvation. I never once said anybody's losing their salvation. Notice that I said, if. So what you're supposed to do this morning is hear this warning and obey it. Then nobody will be in this category of having a high-handed fist toward God. If you hear these words and run toward Jesus, then we're not talking about any of us this morning. And so if we want to talk about losing salvation or those, that's not the topic that Hebrews is talking about. Other books of the Bible talk about that, but this book of the Bible is not talking about that. So if we want to talk about those details, we can do that another time in another book. This book is warning Christians, don't reject Jesus. And in fact, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, do you realize that only Jesus' blood can save you from your sins and the anger of God's wrath? Don't reject Jesus. Receive him. That's our third and final point. Behold the Christ who was consumed. We want to believe in the wrath and the reality of it. We want to beware of the sin with no sacrifice. But thirdly and finally and maybe most importantly, we as a church need to behold the Christ who was himself consumed. If I am a preacher who is aiming to preach the whole counsel of God, I believe it would be my just duty to now present you with the good, gracious news of God's grace to you, that God is not just a judge, but he brings salvation by putting that judgment on Jesus Christ. God's terrifying judgment should cause you to turn and run like a child being told from his mom or dad, do not run into that busy street. You could die. That's the warning. Do you see the judgment, the 
peril, the danger. Don't go in the busy street. They're big cars, and they move really fast, and you're not so quick. Stay far away. And if you're a good, sensible child, you run far from the busy street, right? So if that's us this morning, how do we run from God's wrath and anger? And here is the strange paradox of the Christian faith. Your problem is God, and your solution is God. You run from God, and you run to God. Run from his wrath and flee to his mercy. You see, the same God that holds you, as Jonathan Edwards said, holds you over the pit of hell like a spider or a loathsome insect over a fire and abhors you and is dreadfully provoked by your sin, that same God You know what deliberate action he made? He dropped himself into that pit and died on a cross for your sins. The God whose wrath that burns like fire and considers us worthy of nothing else but fuel for the fire, that same God's wrath burned like fire against Jesus Christ on the cross. And he did not become just fuel for the fire. He extinguished the fire. The God whose eyes are so holy that they can't even look at you can't even bear to see you. They can look on you with love and kindness and mercy, receive you with his grace because God decided to turn away from Jesus when all of our sin was placed on him. You know that song we sing, it was our sin that held him there. The father turns his face away because our sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. As Edward said, there's no explanation why we didn't go to hell last night when we went to sleep. There's no explanation why we were allowed to awake this morning and no reason why you should not have been dropped into hell when you woke this morning. But there is an explanation. God in his mercy and grace has decided to rescue you from that pit because Christ fell into it by his own choosing. There's a deliberate sin you should run from, rejecting Jesus, because of a deliberate decision Jesus made by accepting you in all of your sin. Friends, run to Jesus. See the fury of God's fire and his wrath and be all the more amazed at how wonderful your Savior is this morning. In just a moment, we're going to sing one of the best hymns that's ever been written. Man of sorrows, what a name. Man of sorrows, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full redemption, can it be? Yes, it can. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And there lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Are you seeing that when you start with the holy, righteous wrath of God against sinners, 
And that Jesus would willfully choose to take on all of that wrath and satisfy it completely on the cross. You and I have reason to run to that same God, not out of judgment, but out of His mercy and His grace. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for your word in that every single word, whether we think naturally that it would be good for us or not, has been given to us. It has been recorded and it has been passed down so that this morning we could worship and stand before you, not as guilty sinners with a sensitive conscience thinking, oh dear God, Are we those that have committed deliberate acts of sin against you and have no sacrifice? Father, thank you that we don't have to fear that idea. All we need to do is run to Jesus, embrace him, find his shelter. Thank you for this offering of grace and that we can know what grace really is, what love really is in light of your holy wrath. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.